Exodus chapter 20, we're in a series in the Ten Commandments. I've been hearing a lot from people on two things. Number one, a lot of people have never ever heard a series preached or taught through the Ten Commandments. And i got to tell you, I've never heard it either. And I've never taught it in all the years of ministry. So I'm learning so much as I hope you are learning and being challenged and uh, and really actually leading into the second thing that people are telling me, telling me, and that is I can't uphold even one of these. I am filled with despair. That's what I keep hearing people say. And uh, friends, that's not a bad thing because it will make you flee to the cross for help. And that is the goal of this. The Ten Commandments are to bankrupt us morally. None of us have the righteousness to uphold the Ten Commandments. All of us need Christ. He must free us. And God freed Israel from Egypt. Then He taught them how to live. If we're going to live as the people of God, first you've got to be a people in Christ. Christ has to save you. And then He's got to empower us and He's got to teach us how to live. So we get to the Sixth Commandment. We've just passed halfway. And here's the Sixth Commandment. It's forbidding us to kill. It's telling us to preserve life. Now you heard that, right? There's two coins. There's two sides to this coin. There's the negative, the positive. The negative, don't kill. The positive, preserve life. And that's why this commandment, it's, this is why we're driven to support ministries like the Care Net of the Lehigh Valley because they're preserving the life of the unborn. It's why we get involved in the Walk for Life coming up in April because there's 3,300 abortions in America every single day. Can I take that and unanesthetize that word? There's 3,300 murders of the unborn and they occur every day. You want to extrapolate that out worldwide? It's 115,000 murders of the unborn every single day around the world. We've got to support ministries that will preserve the life of those who can't speak for themselves. It's honoring and upholding the Sixth Commandment. It's why we support the new ministry called She's My Sister, which is aimed at taking help and bringing it to women all over the Congo area, who have been sexually abused, whose husbands have been murdered right in their own homes by rogue military forces, whose children have been taken, even babies, and molested and drafted uh, against their will into the military, into slavery. This is happening in horrific proportions. Most of us don't know it. We've got people in our own church that have been on the ground over there. We've got Lee Manus and Bob Briggs with the American Bible Society, and they took Louis Briggs, Bob's son, and Louis came back, impacted, and said, we've got to do something. The Sixth Commandment says we've got to preserve life, meaning we've got to do something as far as our power extends to preserve life around the world. And so Louis has started this, this campaign, and a whole team of people that have joined him called She's My Sister. They're going to bike ride from Florida to Maine, to increase awareness of all the devastating suffering happening in Africa, and they're going to raise money and get us involved. They want advocates. They want sponsors. But friends, they're upholding the Sixth Commandment, and they're bringing honor to God. This is why we do these things. But here's what we tend to do. You ready? Now, let's just be honest. I mean, God already knows our hearts. It might as well be anyways. You can't put any pretensions up before the Lord. 
sometimes we get to the sixth commandment, a very familiar one, and we sort of breathe a sigh of relief because guess what? We're not murderers. We're successful. We're educated. We're civilized, right? Friends, have you ever thought of the parable of the Good Samaritan? You remember that story that Jesus told, right? Have you ever thought that those bandits that attacked that man traveling down that road to Jericho and then all of a sudden followed by two of the religious elite in Palestine, that each of them on separate occasions sees this victim lying in his blood, helpless to move, helpless to find help. They see him and they cross to the other side of the road and they move on without doing anything. And here comes a wretched Jewish despised Samaritan who is the bane of the people of the Jews who sees the victim and stops and does everything in his power to bring help to that person. Have you ever thought through that parable with the sixth commandment in mind and finally profoundly realize that the bandits as well as the two Jewish religious elites, all of them were guilty of murder? The only one that upheld the sixth commandment in that story was the Samaritan. And friends, we're guilty of murder whether we like to admit it or not. When we do not preserve life, when we do not do whatever is within our power to bring life and preserve it to image bearers, those who's God, who God has imprinted Himself on. That's the sixth commandment. We're going to see the letter of the commandment, and then I'm going to bring you to the spirit of the commandment. And when you get to the command itself, it reads this, four words, you shall not murder. It's four words in the English. And most of you, as I'm looking, didn't even need to look down at your Bibles. You know this command. It's four words. Some say thou shalt not kill. You shall not murder. But in the Hebrew language, it's two words. Simply don't kill. And all of a sudden immediately we start getting led astray in our thinking. Friends, it's this commandment, thou shalt not kill, interpreted that way, that people use to underscore why it's not right to defend yourself, why passive resistance is the way to go, why people can't join the military. They all uphold the sixth commandment in proclaiming this. Why meat industries and packing houses got to be shut down they're killing animals. Why? Because of the Sixth Commandment. When, and capital punishment is evil. It's of the devil. It should not be happening. Why? Because the Sixth Commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. But it's not what God is saying. This word, kill, is not a generic word for any kind of killing. It's a specific word. Here's how it's rendered in the Hebrew. It means unlawful killing. Our word is murder. And it's a word that's never ever used in the Bible for any God-sanctioned world, war rather, or capital punishment. It's not a word used in the Bible for lethal self-defense. The word is always used to forbid premeditated murder, various kinds of manslaughter or assassination. In short, don't kill means no unlawful killing which violates justice. 
Friends, the sixth commandment was meant to preserve life. And we see this clearly in the area of how the Bible teaches us about capital punishment. You want to know where the underpinnings, the theological, the theological beginnings of capital punishment lie? Turn your Bibles or look on the screen. Genesis 9, here's what God Himself says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So here's what God is saying. If an animal kills a human being, put the animal to death. If another person kills another human being unlawfully is where he's going, put the man to death. Why? Because every one of us, every person in the world is made in the image of God. Even that neighbor that you cannot stand is made in the image of God. And murder destroys the image bearer. You shall not murder is meant to highly regard God's image on each person and to do what you can to preserve Life, and when we do that, listen, grab hold of this, look at me. When we preserve life with all that we can, we're really loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we're loving our neighbor as ourselves. You know, God laid out capital punishment in Exodus 21, and some of you are thinking, well, man, he's the pastor of death this morning. It's important that we see this. God Himself laid it out. It was implemented in cases of murder and child sacrifice, voluntary manslaughter. If you had an ox and you knew the ox was dangerous and the ox broke free and it gored somebody to death, then the ox was to be put to death and the owner of the ox. Capital punishment was for those who bore false witness on a capital charge. All of this in the Bible. Insult or injury to a parent, kidnapping a person, various forms of sexual immorality, various religious offenses like taking the name of God and blaspheming it. And the Jews carried it out in four ways. There's four ways that the Jews carried out capital punishment. The first was stoning. And immediately in our mind we think, well, a bunch of people from the uh, town grab a bunch of rocks and they start pelting the victim until he dies. That's not what happened. What they did is they took a man who maybe was six foot tall. And the rule was you take him to a height twice his own height and you drop him off that height. And if the, if the fall does not kill him, then you drop boulders on him until he dies. It was a form of Jewish capital punishment. Another one was burning. And we think tied to a stake in the midst of a, of a pile of dry wood, but that's not what they did. They took a cloth and they wrapped it around the neck of the victim and they pulled it tight until the mouth was forced open and he was kneeling on a pile of either dung or pitch and then they poured molten lead down his throat or a wick and set it on fire and believe it or not Herbert Lowe an anthropologist says it was a fast and merciful death beheading was another way it was done by a sword or an axe where the criminal was tied to a post 
so that even in, in his death, his impure, unholy body would not fall to the ground and contaminate the land which was so precious to the Jews, and the axe would take the head from the body. And then finally, strangling where a cloth was wound around the neck and the ends pulled up until the victim died. Now, I wanted to tell you that not to do what is always happening, I'm finding. I never have anybody as interested in what I'm saying as when I talk about this. You know, your eyes are as big as saucers for some of you. But I wanted to explain to you how capital punishment was implemented so that I could get to what I'm going to tell you right now. Over against the horror of capital punishment, which, by the way, friends, was rarely implemented. Over against the horror of it is clearly seen the mercy of God in Jewish law. Let me explain. God commanded that there would be cities of refuge. If you accidentally killed somebody at work, I can tell you right now what's going to happen. It was duty for the next of kin to the victim to find you and to enact vengeance. And so God commanded, let there be cities of refuge that are established and you flee to them. And if you make it into that city, then you are safe and you await a fair trial. And the roads to these cities had to be maintained, had to be kept open all year long to make every possibility for the one who might be innocent to find their way to a city of refuge. There were six of them. And every Jew that lived in Palestine was only 30 miles. The furthest they could be from a city of refuge was 30 miles. Every opportunity for a fair trial was to be given because life was precious. And you couldn't be convicted. Listen, you couldn't be convicted on anything less than two eyewitnesses. Circumstantial evidence was never, ever accepted into a Jewish court. See, vengeance and condemnation were deliberately made difficult, almost impossible. The court was open all day during a trial in case fresh evidence of the innocence of the accused was obtained. And on the day of execution, a man was sent through the city in advance of the guard that would take the individual to the execution site. There was a man taken through the city or went through the city hollering out for anybody who has fresh evidence, please come to the courtroom and issue it forth because every opportunity to preserve life was given. The repeal process was endless as long as evidence could further the, the plea of innocence. On that day, there was a man who stood at the courthouse that had a white cloth in his hand. And at the distance of the eye, how far as you could see towards the execution site would be another man on horseback and if evidence came in last second that the person was innocent, he would wave the white cloth. The man on the horseback would ride as fast as he could, galloping to the execution site and stop the execution, bringing him back to the courthouse to begin the process of appeal again. Jewish law was determined to save life rather than to kill because, friends, life was regarded as precious. We bear the image of God. And so the command in the sixth command is this, you shall not murder, and it's both a prohibition against unlawful killing while at the same time, you've got to get this, 
It's a command to do everything in your power to preserve life. Let's leave the letter of the law and let's travel to the spirit of the law and we're going to go forward to the day of Christ and let Jesus Himself interpret this command and He does so in Matthew chapter 5. And we'll be here for the rest of the message. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. And in chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus is speaking. And friends, this is incredibly interesting and incredibly convicting. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Friends, this was well taught to the Jews, but there was a major, major problem in Judaism in the time of Christ. In fact, listen, let me help you understand it by moving you centuries forward to the 16th century to the church because the same problem was active then. You see, in the 16th century, the Bible was translated into Latin. And Latin wasn't the language of the common people. Nobody but the educated and the elite and the priests knew how to speak Latin. So you would go to church and friends, listen, you don't know what a privilege you have. Nobody carried these under their arms. Nobody had copies of the Bible because you just couldn't read it. So all of the authority was invested upward into the priests and the leaders of the church who alone could interpret the Word of God for you. That's why the church hated Tyndale. That's why the church hated Martin Luther. To reduce that authority to the hands of the common people they thought was a threat to them. That's why many were burned at the stake. The same problems occurring though, and many don't know this, but it's it's prevalent in the times of Christ. You see, the Old Testament Hebrew, most of the Bible in the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, some sections in Aramaic. But friends, the Jews lost the command of Hebrew during the exile. So most of the people, the common country folk of Jesus' day, spoke Aramaic and a spattering of country Greek. 250 years before Christ, the scribes interpreted the Old Testament into Greek, but to purchase a Greek version of the Old Testament was a huge endeavor, both expensive and heavy and bulky. Nobody, friends, nobody was going to the synagogue with the Old Testament Bible under their arms. You don't realize what a gift we have in owning your own Bible and having the privilege of access to the very words of God. Take advantage of it. But what happened in Judaism in the time of Christ is the same thing in the 16th century. The power and the authority was invested upward to the scribes who were Jewish lawyers and the Pharisees who were the police that enforced the laws of the scribes. And all of a sudden, the people began to develop. They know best. They know what the Word of God is saying. We've got to listen to them. They are the authority. And all of a sudden, the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees became just as authoritative as the Word of God itself, and in many cases, more so. So when we read in Matthew 5.21 that you have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, Jesus is taking these traditions, these uh, oral traditions that the scribes had created, and He is shattering them and bringing the truth back 
to the Word of God. He's the living Word. He wrote the Word of God. Friends, this is what was so astonishing about Jesus to the common people. You see, the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, they put their authority in their interpretation of the law and their traditions. Jesus' authority came from Himself. I tell you, not Rabbi so-and-so tell you. This is what Mark says. The people were astonished at His teaching for He taught them as one who had authority. His authority was in Himself, not as the scribes who were always quoting other rabbis and quoting their traditions. And the scribes had reduced the Sixth Commandment to just the literal act of murder, the act of unlawful killing by your own hand. And like us today, it's, it was one commandment that they could say finally, I've never broken it, I've never killed anybody. And what that can tend to do in us is it creates a sense that I am okay with God. The Bible calls it self-righteousness. And it also says our self-righteousness is like dirty rags in the sight of holy God. None of us are filled with our own righteousness for everything that we do falls short of the standard of God, falls short of the glory of God. So Jesus says to them, to the crowd, the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard so much about, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And I'm telling you right now, the scribes and the Pharisees were saying, Amen, Jesus, you go, that's exactly right, that's what we've been saying. They knew the penalty. They knew the judgment for murder. It was laid out in Numbers 35. And, and friends, listen, many of them probably even sat on that judgment court. You will be liable to judgment. Here's how it looked. Little towns, 150 people and less, had a judgment court of three men in their town, and those were the ruling body. If you had a larger village, then your judgment court, your, what you're liable to, was consisting of seven men. And if you had a large city, and Jerusalem was an example of this, when Jesus was pulled uh, the, the morning before he was executed, when he was pulled before the priests and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, it was a Sanhedrin, and there was 23 men on that court. So you will be liable to judgment means you're going to have to appear before this ruling body that dispenses justice. And then comes the word but. Now look at your text. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, he's still explaining the sixth command, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The Pharisees said, you who murder will be liable to judgment. Jesus says, anyone who is angry with your brother will be liable to judgment. Wait a minute, Jesus. Did we just hear you right? Did you just say that my anger with another person is morally the same as murder? The answer is yes. Can I tell you I spent an entire week trying to find a way around this? I struggle with anger. Don't you struggle with anger? There's a reason that David Paulison, an extraordinary counselor, book writer from Westminster, says in his estimation, estimation, very unscientific, 95% of our anger is unrighteous. 
The sixth command is aimed at loving God with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we saw last week that we lift up and we honor one another because we all carry God's image. If you're going to honor God and honor your neighbor, you lift them up to their rightful place, God's glory and image bearing in our neighbor's. And murder destroys that image in another human being. But friends, this is where Jesus is going. He's saying that we harm and we destroy that image way more than just by our hands. Did you hear that? When we hate and despise, when we're full of anger, and full of bitterness and resentment at other people, friends, Jesus is saying we are murderers in our hearts. Can I ask you to be talking to yourself for a second and be honest with who you are? Is there somebody in your life that you're, you're really angry with? There's bitterness there. There's resentment. There's a breach Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a parent that's no longer alive. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a neighbor, a coworker, a friend that used to be in your life. Maybe it's God. But who just came to your mind when I asked that? Whose face appeared? This commandment's about you and that person. It's always always been tempting for people to try and explain away the force of Jesus' words. Here's how they do it. Some point, some scribe saying, no way could Jesus be saying that all anger is murder. I'm going to add the clause without cause. And so some of your Bibles actually say that. Friends, i got to tell you, the best and most reliable manuscripts do not have without cause or without a cause in it. And so people shift to another rationale. Well, Jesus became angry. Look what he did in the beginning and the end of his ministry. He created a whip in one of those occasions and drove the merchants out of the temple. I don't think he was in a good mood when he did it. Zeal for his father's house was consuming him. That's anger. And then a little later we see in Mark 3 that he got really angry in a synagogue because there's a guy there with a withered hand and the Pharisees weren't wanting him to heal him because it was a Sabbath. And Jesus got really angry. How can you not care about the man who is suffering? Why are you more cared about your traditions? And then we get to Matthew 23, the last week of Christ. And I don't think Jesus was very happy when he's telling the Pharisees that they're whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. Jesus got angry. So why can't we get angry? Why are you telling me that anger is murder? Well, let me tell you something about Jesus' anger. And friends, it's the core of the sermon. You ready? Every time and at all times, the anger of Jesus centered on His Father's glory and on His love for image bearers. He got angry when people were robbing his father of his glory. And he got angry when people who bear the image of God, their life was being extinguished before them. See, righteous anger always 
fulfills the Ten Commandments. It loves God with all of its heart, mind, soul, and strength, and its neighbor as itself. It was God's, it was Jesus' love for his father. It was his love for his neighbor that always produced anger. But friends, I want to bring you forward from Matthew 23, just a few days, and now Jesus has been whipped with 39 lashes. His body, his back, and his hips laid open and walking to his execution site. And I can tell you there was no man with a white cloth and there was nobody on horseback because they all wanted him to die. And when they were putting him up on that cross, they were still reviling him and still spitting on him. Have you ever been spat on in anger? I have one time in my life. It was in residential psychiatry when I was a counselor. And I had to restrain a little boy that was out of control, and I'll never forget, he turned his face to me and spit right in my face, and I was enraged. It is humiliating, it is violating to be spit on. And here's Jesus being spit on, being reviled, being teased, being taunted, and he's in the midst of pain. The only fist fight that I have ever gotten into in my life happened on a basketball court when one of my best friends, Artie Kiggins, was guarding me and he slapped me right in the lower back where it stings so bad. And I turned around and I pushed him and his best friend, my best friend, Alan Lydell, hauled off and punched me right in the mouth. When you're in pain, it brings anger a lot of times. But it didn't in Jesus. Listen to what it says in Peter's account. Christ also suffered for you. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, when Jesus was the one being violated, when Jesus was the one that was being mistreated, it didn't ever produce anger. His anger was reserved to defend his father's glory and to defend those made in his Father's image. Friends, that's righteous anger. And we have precious little of it. But let me give you some background into what Jesus means when he uses that word anger or angry. Here's two, there's two definitions, there's two Greek words in the New Testament for anger. One of them is this, it's anger that quickly blazes up and just as quickly dies down. It's that outburst, quick-tempered Anger is described as being like the flame which comes from dried straw, consumes it quickly, and it's extinguished. That's not the word for anger here. It's the other one, which describes anger which has become deep-rooted. It's long-lived. It's brooding. It's undying anger. It's laced all the way through with bitterness. It's anger that refuses to forgive, doesn't even want reconciliation, it defends your own personal rights and your own personal glory. That's the anger that Jesus has in mind. And it's unrighteous anger. Friends, it's the heart committing murder. If anger is to be righteous, it must defend what is right. It must defend God's glory and the image-bearing people all around us. Doing whatever is in your power to preserve life. And Jesus explains this further. He says, whoever insults his brother 
I like the other translation. It's a little easier. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka. Remember I told you that parts of the Old Testament were written in Aramaic? This is an Aramaic term, Raka. It means empty-headed. It's a term of malicious abuse. It was a slanderous term. Somewhat similar to somebody in anger calling another person a bonehead or a brainless idiot or a jerk. The person who angrily utters raka, listen friends, reduces that other person to the level of a nothing, a nobody, an insignificant idiot who is a waste of life. It's murder. And you've never lifted a hand. It's done with your tongue. It's to be full of a sense of your own superiority and to look down on other people and to attack the image of God in them and reduce them to a state of absolute worthlessness before your eyes. And Jesus goes on and He says, whoever says, you fool, when I was a little boy and I read this, it stuck with me. I don't think that I've ever seriously called anybody a fool since because it had stayed with me even though I didn't understand it. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The word fool occurs all through Scripture, predominantly in Proverbs. If you take the Greek word, which is moros, it translates to moron. That's how we translate it in English. And that doesn't mean someone with a low IQ. Proverbs never meant somebody without knowledge or somebody with a low IQ in Proverbs. When they, when they called somebody a fool. Rather, it's an accusation. It's slandering the character and the moral condition of another person. To angrily say, you fool, and you can use any term you want as long as it has the same goal. I am slandering the moral quality of your personhood. It's to destroy the image of God and that person by attacking the reputation. And in short, hating that person. You ever had somebody that you were angry at? And you want to help other people understand your anger and you justify your anger so you tell them what that person has done for you, to you. And in the process of that, you're slandering and you're reducing the image of God in that person and you're bringing other people into the sin. That's what gossip, that's what slander does. And it's called murder by Jesus. And unrighteous anger is the force that moves us to this crime. John put it this way, everyone who hates the Greek meaning has active ill will toward his brother is a murderer. Friends, it's urgent. It is urgent that we deal with anger and resentment and bitterness. And to help us see how urgent it is, look what Jesus does. He gives us two examples. Number one, He shows us the effect of anger, the effect that it has in our vertical relationship. He says, so if you are suffering or offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, unrighteous anger is murderous anger. And friends, listen, it pollutes your worship. See, you need to understand the Jews believed and practiced 
that the breach vertically between you and God, between me and God, could never be healed until human beings could reconcile their differences. So if it was discovered that a person is in the temple with a sacrifice in hand, who had stolen something and had not yet returned what he had stolen, they believed that that sacrifice was incapable of covering that man's sin. And if it was discovered that he had been a sinner and had not yet reconciled that breach by doing what is right, they would take that sacrifice, if it was a goat or a lamb, and they would lead it outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem, and they would burn that animal to ash. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, Psalm 66 says. And so you've got the image, you've got the picture of a person who brings his sacrifice to the temple. And listen, you've got to pass through concentric courts. You go through the court of the Gentiles. And then you go to the court of Israel, the court of the women, the court of the men, and then you get to the court of the priests. And there's a railing there because you can't go beyond that if you're not a priest. So here you are against the railing with your sacrifice and you're waiting for the priest to come to you to either give you the knife so that you could slice the throat of that lamb or the priest would do it and collect the blood. But you've got your hands on the lamb ready to transfer and confess your sins onto the scapegoat. And all of a sudden Jesus says, you remember, hey, I've got a friend you haven't talked to in a year got a parent that you're angry with you've got a breach with one of your kids you got an issue that's not yet been settled between you and a co-worker and jesus says hey leave the offering there because god doesn't want it and go and whatever power is in you make that breach right you know what that looks like today It looks like this, if you're sitting here right now and God has brought to mind a breach in your life that you've not yet done everything you can to heal it and to reconcile it, get up out of your chair, leave, and go urgently to make it right, then come back and worship. We've had people get up and go make a phone call. We've had people go out in the hallway and say, listen, I need to ask for your forgiveness. Before Dean died, He was asking people to forgive him and he was freely giving forgiveness to those who came in asking for it because breaches this way pollute worship this way. Isaiah says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear for your hands are defiled with blood. Not just hands physically, it's metaphoric and your fingers with iniquity and your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. We murder in our hearts with anger that brims and simmers and it pollutes our worship with God. Husbands, let me tell you something. Peter tells us there's a reason sometimes God is not listening to your prayers, that your prayers are hindered because you're not and I'm not treating our wives with gentleness and love. Make it right, and then come back and pray. But it's not just vertical. Jesus gives us one more illustration, an example that says, hey, your anger is affecting you on the horizontal. You can't love God with all your being, and you can't love your neighbor 
as yourself because of your anger. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court. You know why he said that? It was not uncommon. This is debtor's court. This is a debt that he's talking about. It's not uncommon that if I owe you money and I'm not paying you and you've been coming back over and over and I'm not paying you, that you come up to me and you grab the front of my robe and you twist it until I can barely breathe and yank me and drag me to court. That happened all the time. And Jesus says, while you're being dragged to court, don't wait till you get before the judgment council because they're not going to have mercy. You better deal with it now and get this breach healed to get the anger and the bitterness and the sin out of your heart. And he's not talking here about a human judgment council. He's really telling us, you're going to stand before my Father, the judge. And right now, this life, whatever days we've got left, is our journey to that judgment council. Make sure when you stand before him, that breach has been closed and the anger is out. Friends, anger is separated from danger by one letter. It is lethal to your soul. And if it's not expunged from the heart, it will eventually put all of us into a prison. Look at what he says at the end of that. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny out of what, he says before that, you're going to be put in prison. Anger is a prison. Bitterness is a prison. It defiles many. And there's one key to the door of a prison of anger. You ready? Forgiveness. That's it. Friends, there is no other key. You've got to forgive. I've got to forgive freely. And we've got to ask for forgiveness. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because you're going to give an opportunity to the devil. Unrighteous anger makes it impossible for us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we cannot love our neighbor as ourselves. Why? Because anger is murder. Deal with your anger before it can root itself into your soul and put you in prison. Friends, are you angry with someone? Not that quick outburst anger. Is there a settled anger in your heart and in unforgiveness friends deal with it it is urgent today because it's polluting your worship it's polluting your love with your neighbor lord thank you for your word this is hard pray for my friends many of whom are struggling with this god i pray for mercy i pray for help i pray for your grace that you would move them to be able to freely Forgive and unlock the door of the prison that they're in. They could walk out of there and live freed as free people to serve you and to worship you and to love you with all of who they are and love their neighbor as themselves. God, I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.